Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, and sitting across from me is Liam. How's it going, my friend? I'm good, mate. I've got a couple of weeks off coming up soon and I cannot fucking wait. Yeah? Can't do anything with it, but I'm not going to be there, so that's all that counts. The usual sit around in your pants stuff, right? Yeah, watching films, you know, maybe having a cheeky tug or two. (laughs) I haven't got a girlfriend, so. Any takers? Please do write into the Cinematalist <laughs> podcast. Would you like a growly voice film reviewer? <laughs> We've got one. <laughs> it's okay if you say no. Uh, absolute disaster before we started recording this evening, Liam. What's that? Um, I haven't seen myself in a mirror for a couple of weeks, so I decided oh, my, my mustache feels like it's getting a bit long. I should probably go and trim that. I've got a beard, and I probably trim a mustache maybe once a month. Yeah. I hadn't seen it in a month. And I looked in the mirror, and it has gone, I'd say, a good 30 to 40% grey. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was not impressed. Yeah, but see, I mean, you are just subjectively. I think you, I've always thought you were actually quite a decent looking fella. So that means that you've got the silver fox thing. There's nothing wrong with the silver fox thing, man. Believe me, if you'd seen the mustache before it was trimmed, you would not say silver fox. You would say <laughs> tramp under a bridge. Was, was the look I was going for on that one. But. Yeah, but it's, it's not the look, it's how you rock it. You know, it's- yeah, I keep telling myself that. Yeah, my girlfriend thinks it's absolutely hilarious. She's been take- <laughs> taking the piss nonstop about my in- continuing grey moustache. But none in the hair yet. And uh, no grey pubes so far Stop either. Stop capitulating so to her wind-ups, mate. That's probably more information than the audience wanted to know. Really. <laughs> I just feel like we should give some context, you know, about our... Well, you know, with, there's, with the plans to engineer a forum and that, these, these people, they're not just our listeners, they're our friends. Yeah, they're, they're part, part of family they're now. They're yeah. you know, we're all one big cinephilic community, yeah. which is better than a syphilitic community. I was going to say cinephilic sounds wrong on <clears> so many <throat> levels, but it is, it's actually completely fine. It's just one of those words that sounds like cinephilic. I know you mean. Yeah. I, I've used it several times, and every single time I use it, there is this residual, ugh... Sort yeah, of <laughs> well, we were originally going to call the podcast, which is your uh, blog suggestion, was uh, Cinephilic Freak, I think. Yeah. But we thought that was even harder to pronounce it's, than Cinemental. It's, it's, it's got connotations of disease. Yeah, it? Cinephilic. <laughs> There's something syphilitic about it. Which is all right by me because I like making people feel repulsed, but there we go. <laughs> well, hopefully the podcast is doing just that. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, film news then. Let's crack on with the show. First thing I got this week, there's actually quite a lot of new movies being announced. Yeah. Which is very cool to see. I think now that the lockdown restrictions, we've got an end date for it. Um, You know, budgets are starting to be freed up. People are starting to move towards pre-production. One interesting thing I found, this is an article from Cinema Blend entitled, um, Upcoming Universal Classic Monster Movies. So Universal has got the rights to a lot of the, what we would consider old school movie monsters. I think. Like Wolfman and Frankenstein and the yeah. Mummy. Yeah, so they got a load of these in the works. Apparently, these are all entering well pre-production, and some of them, I think, production as soon as uh, people are allowed to get on it, on set on mass, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, first of these, a uh, Bride of Frankenstein is going to be a uh, a new film of this. Uh, from the article here, this is the first of the batch of some roots in the collapsed dark universe. With the Mummy scriptwriter David Cope still set to be behind the Bride of Frankenstein movie. It was initially in the works to be part of Universal's shared universe with Beauty and the Beast Bill Condon directing and starring Angelina Jolie, although she is no longer involved. Since the Dark Universe fell apart, probably because the Mummy was terrible. Um, so the one where Russell Crowe was uh, Dr. Henry Jekyll? Yeah, the only watchable thing in it actually was Russell Crowe mangling a British accent, which is always fun. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, pretty damn hilarious. Given that the mummy, the Brendan Fraser, is so widely loved, to sort of do another version of it with Tom Cruise. I've always enjoyed the uh, Brendan Fraser mummy. Yeah, it's just, even it's the sequel's quite good. It's just it's really cinematic. It's got I think Arnold Vosloo just makes such a great villain. I do you know what the amount of people I had arguments with back in the day who were like, who plays the main villain in the mummy, and they would always say Billy Zane. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> do, you know, no. do you know how many people made that mistake? They like mistaking on Vosloo for Billy Zane. It was pretty really? it's pretty incredible, yeah. Well, uh last summer Cope said he delivered a new draft to Universal and new directors were being determined for Bride of Frankenstein. The writer, who also wrote Jurassic Park and Spider-Man, has said the movie will discuss the idea of ownership of women that is especially relevant in the Me Too era. At the same time, Scarlett Johansson will be adapting the character in a different way for an A24 movie called Bride. So we're getting two Bride of Frankenstein films, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah could be fun. Uh, another one here, Dark Army. This is uh, Paul Feig or Feig? Uh, Feig. Feig, yes. I'm pretty sure it's Feig. Is it Feig? Yeah, Feig. Fair enough. Uh, Paul Feig is a director who is primarily known for making comedies, but he's really played with genre over the years with movies like the crime thriller, A Simple Favor, Buddy Cop Movie, The Heat, or his version of Ghostbusters. He'll contribute to Universal's monster movie Slate with a movie called Dark Army, which will be a homage to James Whale's old monster movies that started it all for Universal. Feig said he will play into the source material and how monsters can be extreme versions of outsiders. He's got some reservations about the product, though. He thinks that uh, it might be a little too expensive but he's vowed that he's going to make the movie regardless, so he seems to be shipping this around a little bit. Uh, he's called the script that he's got for Dark Army so far one of the favourite things he's ever written, especially in terms of the lead character he wrote for it. So uh, Dark Army, I think, is a bunch of the movie monsters coming together in a Marvel Avengers superhero kind of way, although I guess in this case, supervillains. Directed by Paul Faye. Yes. Well, with all due respect, I'm not going to hold my breath, to be honest with you. Uh, a couple of different takes on Dracula coming up as well. Uh, the first one is from Karen Kasuma, who has found a unique voice in the horror space already with her work on cult favorite Jennifer's Body with Megan Fox and uh, 2016's The Invitation. It was announced in March that Kusama will be reviving Dracula for Universal and Blumhouse, and she has since explained that it will be a faithful adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel, previously adapted by Francis Ford Coppola in 1992. Well, um, The Invitation is actually one of my favorite underrated horror films uh, of the 21st century, so if it has that writing talent attached to it, that does pique my enthusiasm a bit. Well, she seems really committed to, uh, I've got another quote here, Kasama wants to do justice to the book, specifically in terms of the different points of view illustrated in the book. It sounds like novel fans will be excited for this remake specifically, but as the filmmaker warned, it won't be the romantic hero version of Dracula we also know and love. Good, as far as I'm concerned. Sounds cool. Yeah, because the, the Bram Stoker novel is a classic for a reason. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm interested. Have you, have you heard, are you familiar with the... Uh, the film, The Invitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Logan Mike. It's good, man. If you're not- if Yeah, you, I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely good. More people need to see that one. And there's also going to be another version by uh, Chloe Zhao. Uh, so she was the director of Nomadland. Uh, she's going to be making her own Dracula movie using a much different approach. She's going to direct, write, and produce a version of the classic monster that will be, and in quotes here, an original futuristic sci-fi western. An original futuristic sci-fi western. Yes, and also Dracula. Well, I mean... I've been really intrigued by that. I mean, I have no clue what's going on there. What, you, what, what was your... I, I, like a, I like a batshit, you know, What was your... Me. Yeah, I think you might have told me, but what was your feeling of uh, Cowboys versus Aliens? I just thought it was dull. Because they, pl they played it very straight 
with it, didn't they? Yeah, I, I thought it was, was just a very weird for a, again an idea, a concept that has so much going for it. And you get there, and you go. I mean, it's obviously supposed to be like B movie schlock with the Cowboys or Slayers, but they almost they almost played it like it wasn't schlock. Like it was you're supposed to. Yeah, they, it that's what I mean. They they played it very straight. Yeah, and it's which is and it felt weird. I I don't remember the film very well, which is probably a bad sign. I, but I do remember being bored. And in a film entitled Cowboys versus Aliens, I think the one thing you should not be is bored. So there you go. No sale. Yeah. <laughs> what else have we got here? Frankenstein, of course. This is really interesting. Uh, James Wan is oh, yes. taking on Frankenstein. Okay. Consider the modern master of horror, of course, Conjuring Universe, Insidious, all that sort of stuff. I don't stuff. know about the modern master of horror, but... Well, okay. I guess in terms of box office revenue. So yeah, I'm, I'm just being a contentious prick. No, no. I'm, I'm sincere as well. I'm with you, but I think he's probably the most known modern horror director in terms of the mainstream horror stuff, you know, Saw franchise and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, he's going to be taking on Frankenstein, which should be interesting. He's got some good ideas already. Um, the next version of the story apparently will involve a group of teens who discover that a neighbor is building a monster in his basement and then he gets loose. The project has been compared to Disturbia and Stranger Things. Okay, sounds promising. Yeah, I sounds think that's a good direction to take it. And I don't think, you know, I'm not a huge fan of James Wan's work, but he has made some good horror. And he's quite inventive and creative as a, as a creative force. That might be interesting. It's funny you... Just because you mentioned the film Disturbia, I never imagined that coming up on, the, up on the podcast. That was a film that I was ready to despise. And then I watched it and I thought, that wasn't actually that bad. Mm. Especially as it was rip, essentially ripping off Rear Window, which is one of my favourite films of all time. I was about to loathe it, but then I thought, no, do you know what? It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll run with that. We'll yeah. With that. <laughs> Another one here, this sounds fun. And this is from someone that hates musicals. Uh, Monster Mash. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, which will be written, it's an original musical the universe is also producing, written by Will Widger and directed by music video filmmaker Matt Stowski. He's made music videos from everyone from Paramore, CeeLo Green to Train. Don't know a lot about Monster Mash right now, but it was announced about a year ago and it's expected to be a riff off the classic song we've grown accustomed to hearing during Halloween season. I, I have a particular hatred for musicals, though occasionally one gets through. And a Halloween-y Monster Mash B-movie pastiche thing might be kind of fun. I've, I've kind of got high hopes. Why is it you hate musicals again? Um, for me, there is, I can never get over, or not never, I can almost never get over the breaking the scripting, suddenly everyone you know, bursts into song and dance. Just for me, something in my brain immediately goes, bullshit, fuck off. And I just, yeah, it's a suspension of disbelief thing for me, which I know your, your suspension of disbelief is supposed to be higher for a musical, isn't it? It's much more of a, I like musicals on stage, I think stage productions, they work really well. In films, nah, it never, I, something faintly ridiculous about it that just turns my brain off. I'd be interested to see your views on, uh, what is it called, London Road? It's got Tom Hardy in it. They actually did a musical based on the aftermath of uh, the killings perpetrated by the Suffolk Strangler. Oh, wow. Steve okay. Wright. That is, mate, you want to, I think that might be fun. You want an experience that just is elusively weird? You should check that out. <laughs> And probably the most exciting project on this list, I think for a lot of people anyway, uh, The Wolfman, as you mentioned earlier on, is one of the first things you thought of with uh, Universal Monsters. Remember Monsters. the 2010, ver well, in fact, the 2010 version with uh, Benicio Del Toro and Hopkins, I think I remember watching that with you. Yeah, well, this is apparently going to star Ryan Gosling. Okay. And uh, Leigh Whannell is going to be doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who I think you're quite a fan of Leigh Whannell. I seem to remember you rating them. Well, I love, I love um, Upgrade. 
So uh, Winnell will write and direct the project that will see the La La Land actor playing an anchorman who becomes the Wolfman. The movie is being compared, and these are big names here, to Nightcrawler and Network, leading us to believe he may be committing crimes and then reporting his exclusives the next morning. Now, to invoke Nightcrawler and Network, which are two fantastic films. Yeah, Upgrade uh, is a film that I have a lot of time and reverence for. I think it's a really great movie. Nightcrawler and Network, though, I mean, especially the Mets Network. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, um, you're going to make those comparisons. That's uh, that's making hefty promises mm. there. So, but yeah, I mean, if, if it can stand along works of that caliber, then fucking A. I think all of these sound like good projects. To begin yeah, with, yeah, yeah, and watch in a year's time when we sit here and review them and go, actually, no, I didn't meet his mark. But well, they they sound interesting. Yeah, it sounds like somebody's actually making an effort. Uh, you know, I think there was this huge plan to do like the dark universe thing, and then the Mummy was so badly reviewed and badly received that it sort of killed it stone dead, and it's taken until now for them to sort of recover the. That was supposed to be the first one. That's why you're bringing in like you know Jekyll and Hyde and all this sort of stuff. They're creating this overarching, as everyone wants to do these days, this big franchise stuff. Everyone's looked at the Marvel Universe stuff and the MCU and the DCU and all this sort of stuff and go, right, this is the way to make money from this point onwards. Um, but the films had to be good. <laughs> you know, There's no getting around it. And The Mummy was such a full start. I think it's time to sort of reboot this now and see whether... I mean, there's some great creative talent on board with these pieces, so I'll be really interested to see um, which ones are hits and which ones are misses. I like the sound of the Wolfman. I like the sound of James Wan doing Frankenstein. I think he's got the chops for it. Yeah, it's... I don't know. It's interesting. I'm definitely going to be intrigued um, to give them a rundown. And I'll tell you why. Cause, I mean, I've probably made no secret of it by this point, but Nightcrawler, for example, that's the kind of movie, especially when it's executed as well as it is, that's the kind of film that really, really gets me going. That's something that it imbues me with an extreme amount of intrigue. Mm -hmm. And, fran you know, franchisey monster slash superhero stuff. It's just the apex of tedium for mm. me. And I know a lot of people will jump down my throat for that, but it really is. So if people can revolutionize it, if people can just deracinate the contemporary state of the mainstream film industry, and even if they don't get rid of these, the, I don't know, these tropes, these USPs altogether, if they can actually do something novel with them. Yeah. Really pull it off. That would be cool. I think it sounds like the creative ideas are there, and hopefully the uh, end result will reflect that. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking time. forward to a few. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okie dokie, then. Well, let's kick off the show. Liam, as usual, has a couple of film reviews for us. What's up first? Right. Well, I think the past couple of times, at least, I've uh, waffled on about a couple of streaming services, haven't I? You have. Yep. Well, a couple of days ago. I decided to uh, sign up for a free trial of Shudder. You familiar with Shudder? I know the name, yeah. I haven't tried it out myself yet. It's essentially like a, how would you describe it? It's sort of like a horror-oriented or extreme thriller-oriented variant of your Netflix. I saw it crop up often as a sponsor on lots of YouTubers that I'm subscribed to and cropping up on Twitter, etc., etc. So I thought, do you know what? I'm doing free trials on, well, I started off doing free trials. I now am paying for Prime on top of Netflix as well. So I'm going to be dogpiling monthly debits at this point. It's the trouble with reviewing everything is you need to sign up to all these fucking streaming services. Exactly. Now, well, it? you know, if this fucking pays off, I won't need to worry about that, will I, peeps? <laughs> no, nah, sorry. That's, that's a very, uh, no. Nah. <laughs> but, um, is yeah. this the point where I point out that we're not being paid by Shudder or indeed any other We're not being service? paid by anybody. No. <laughs> we're not being paid by anybody at all. 
But um, yes, so I thought I'd take a bit of a dive into Shudder and I gave this movie a spin. This is a new one called Sum. This is directed by Irish director Ivan Kavanagh. Are you familiar with Ivan Kavanagh? The name sounds familiar. You know, Never Grow Old with Emil Hirsch and John Cusack. He's done a few films so far. Nothing really amazing, but not nothing really terrible either. This is a new um, horror film written and directed by him, and this stars Andy Matichak, who a lot of people will know from, I believe it's the 2018 reboot of Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis, where it excises all of the sequels and has... Michael Myers escaping after 40 years. Yes, yeah, yeah. And him and Laurie Strode are not related as they are canonically. I quite like that. As a yeah, movie. it was good. Yeah, it was good. Well, Andy Matichak, um, is was prominently in that. Well, she stars in Sun as Laura. And in the opening of this film, Laura is literally barefoot and pregnant in a diner on a pissing down rainy night, shivering cold, drinking coffee, in a shit-covered nightgown and just looking thoroughly distressed with the massively unkempt hair, which looks like a lot of it has been pulled out. She looks in a thoroughly sorry state. And she's sitting there trying to drink her cup of joe and looking very much like she wants to be left the hell alone when a couple of guys walk into the diner and they sit down behind her. She gets very freaked out and she hightails it out of the door, gets into her car, and hurtles down the motorway. But she goes into labor, has to pull the car over to the side of the road, and is screaming like, oh, I don't want you, I don't want you. As soon as the baby comes out of her, her maternal instincts kick right in, and she snuggles the little bundle, and then it skips forward eight years. And now Laura is, uh, Laura is an elementary school teacher, and her son that she gave birth to in the opening sequence, David, she has a very loving relationship with him and they have a, a very comfortable and happy existence together as mother and son, a world away from the rather disturbing looking beginnings that Laura found herself in at the outset. So things are more or less going swimmingly in that kind of quotidian suburban life kind of way. He goes to school in the morning, she works at the school, She's she takes classes I think like uh, sort of developmental psychology classes, they're just living like a seemingly pleasant life. Well, one night, Laura hears weird noises coming from David's room and she goes in there to check on him and she finds him in bed with his pyjamas taken off and a bunch of people just standing around his bed staring at her and the door slams and she can't open it. Naturally, she freaks the fuck out and is shrieking, goes next door, running across the road, slamming on her neighbor's door saying, call the police, call the police, call the police. The cops show up. They do a sweep around. There's nobody in sight. There's not even a, a sign that anybody was on her property or around it whatsoever. So you think, okay, so far, so weird. After that, David starts to become very sick. He develops these horrible rashes all over his body. He starts vomiting up blood. He keeps telling his mum that um, it hurts. He's in agony all over. And uh, she rushes him to the hospital. And the doctors say that you need to prepare yourself for the likelihood that he's not going to wake up because we've done every single conceivable test there is and we don't understand what's wrong with him. So it's down, headed down a pretty fucking dark trajectory at this point. But then he just miraculously gets better completely spick and span, absolutely fine, as if nothing ever happened. She takes him home, 
one of the cops who was called to the first detail, played by Emil Hirsch. I've always been a big fan of Emil Hirsch. He's a guy named officer named Paul. He um sort of starts paying close attention to Laura and David, watching over them, seeing if they're okay, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And David falls ill again and then it gets better. Several times this happens in the film. David falls violently ill and then gets better. And Laura puts two and two together and decides to tell Paul, the police officer played by Hirsch, what she thinks is happening. What we saw in the opening of the film was Laura fleeing a cult that she was raised in, a very violent, sick, dangerous, demon-worshipping, child-molesting cult that was led by her father. That's what she was fleeing in the opening of the film. And she believes that the cult members are somehow engineering events in order to get their hands on David. They want him for some purpose or another. The closer she senses their proximity, the more zeroed in upon she feels, the more extreme the lengths she's willing to go to protect her son and keep him out of their clutches. And all throughout the film, there's a sort of a, a strain of ambiguity as to whether this is valid, this is happening. There are supernatural goings on that are being engineered by this group, or if Laura is completely batshit insane, and this is something that her mind is manufacturing as a way of coping with trauma of suffering bog standards, yet nevertheless horrific childhood abuse. So there's a lot, quite a lot going on in there. Yeah. Now, Son, what can you say about Son? Really great performances. Andy Matichak is really, really good in it. I, lo I really liked her as Laura. She really sold me as a mother who comes from, you know, comes from a troubled background, really fiercely protective and loving of her boy. The kind of natural gamut of emotions you would expect someone to run through that protectiveness, desperation, uh, feeling heartbroken, feeling strained. I think Matchak pulls it off very, very well. Luke David Bloom, who plays date, her kid as well, I think he did a very, very nice job. When it came to Emil Hirsch, I really like Emil Hirsch. I like Emil Hirsch in most things I've seen him in. I thought he was great in Killer Joe. I liked him alongside John Cusack in Ivan Cavan's other effort, Never Grow Old. I've always thought Emil Hirsch was very good. He's not really given a lot to work with here. His character, the police officer of Paul, kind of shows up, looks a bit perturbed and confused. And the film starts to go down. It quickly abandons it, but it starts to go down a romantic subplot for Paul and Laura. And I think, oh God, not one of these fucking things again. Shoehorned. To to yeah, you took the word out of my mouth. Total shoehorned. And the fact that the film did away with it, you know, essentially treated it as a, a red herring for all intents and purposes. I was glad about that fact, though I wish it didn't bring it up in the first place because it was pointless and irritating and not believable. Emil Hirsch's performance is very, very underwritten and essentially pointless. And what Sun does is that it goes from quite an auspicious and interesting opening. It maintains really good cinematography and score pretty much all the way through, but it goes from nice, elliptical, mysterious writing into implausibility in terms of character behavior. Laura kind of goes from a scared and defensive mother to perpetrating actions that just seem wildly out of character for her general persona. They tease at the fact that, well, she is psychologically broken because she endured this and this, and she's very protective of her son. You know, a mother's love knows no limits, etc., etc. Yes, okay, I get that. I understand the implication, but it didn't feel authentic to me. It seemed that they really rapidly accelerated a lot of Laura's 
arc in the film in terms of her actions, and that took me out of it a little bit. It has her doing a lot of things that just seemed completely utterly ridiculous. And the payoff was a little bit shabby, so yeah, as I, I know we've said it a million times before in the podcast, we don't usually assign ratings to these things, but Sun, if I had to give it some sort of rating, it would probably be a 5 out of 10. It's kind of a, it hits a middling point where it doesn't suck, but it starts really cool, and then it just ambles along until the finish where you think, well, yeah, that was kind of, that was baseline watchable at best, but it could have been a shite sight better. Yeah. So, yeah, rather middling, you know. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, Okie yeah. dokie. Well, it inspired me, nevertheless, to do a bit of deeper digging in terms of the Shudder back catalogue, and that led me to Blood Quantum. Now, this film initially screened at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2019, and it was put on VOD on April of last year, I believe. This is written and directed by Jeff Barnaby, who is a uh, Mi'kmaq director from Canada, Mi'kmaq, the tribe of First Nations peoples occupying Canada. And this takes place in the year 1981 on the Red Crow Reservation of uh, Mi'kmaq people. And it opens with uh, Kasigu, who is an elderly First Nations retired police officer played by Stonehorse uh, Logoman. And he's fishing and he retrieves some salmon or trout from the stream and he's gutting them. And all of a sudden, they start flailing about, jumping off of the chopping boards, jumping, falling onto the floor, leaping about everywhere. And he, as you would, he's got a look on his face like, hmm, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Cuts to uh, Gasigo's son, uh, Sheriff Trailer, played by Michael Greyeyes. He's the principal sheriff for the Red Crow Reservation. I always think Native American names are so cool. By the way. Well, Native Canadian, technically. No, that's Canadian. But no, I know what you're yeah. that, you know, That's the thing, you know, Michael Grey Eyes, uh, yeah, Stonehorse, Lone Goman. I wish someone would give me a name like Stonehorse. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's really, yeah, no, no I, I agree with you, man. The indigenous American, or the names of the pe indigenous people of the Americas, they are fucking badass. It's going to be Greybeard at this rate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> it's, I, I'd, I'd pick one of them over, over my own name. Sorry, mum and dad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so Gasigu's son, uh, trailer. He is the sheriff, uh, the principal lawman on the uh, Red Crow res uh, Reservation. He's got two sons, Joseph and Lysol, played by Forrest Goodluck and uh, Kiowa Gordon. They're half-brothers. Uh, he had them with two different women, and they're constantly getting in and out of trouble. And uh, he's just been informed by his ex that they're both in lockup together. And so he's got his hands full with them already. Then his Father, as mentioned in the opening with the freaky fish, his dad calls him over and shows him the gutted fish. And it's like, oh, well, that's kind of weird, eh? <laughs> so that's a terrible Canadian accent. It's very Letterkenny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, and Kasigu says to him, you know, I, you know I've, been, I've been fishing these rivers for 60 years and I've never seen anything like that. It's fucking strange, eh? It's and all so, about the fish. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So Trailer thinks, okay, yeah, that's a little bit bizarre. So, Dad, here, do me a favor. I've got a few things to take care of. I've got to go and pick my sons, well, your grandsons, up from jail because they've been fucking about again. Take this secondary badge. You're now my honorary sheriff for the day. Go and complete these tasks for me. So it's kind of like a humdrum run-of-the-mill day on the Red Crow Reservation until Sheriff Trailer shows up to the station to pick up his sons meets his ex there, who is the younger boy's mother, and they have a bit of a passive-aggressive back and forth 
as is commonplace with ex-spouses and partners. And they go to retrieve the kids and the two boys, Lysol and Joseph, are in lockup with a sort of local drunken white guy who is vomiting his guts up. Seems like he's either coming down hard from drugs or um, a booze bender. And all of a sudden, this guy starts throwing up blood. So the policeman on duty opens the cell and goes, what the fuck's going on here? And said white, drunken, druggy, whatever he is who's throwing up blood, lunges at the policeman on duty and bites him. Sheriff Trailer tries to grab the guy and starts whacking him, and this guy bites Trailer as well. And the reason the fish were flailing around after they'd been gutted, the reason that a dog who was a pet of one of Sheriff Trailer's friends that he euthanized in the beginning came back to life, leaping out of the trunk of the car trying to bite everyone in sight, and the reason this guy in the drunk tank is vomiting up blood and trying to eviscerate the, anyone in reach with his teeth is because a zombie plague has infected the surrounding areas of the Red Crow Reservation. And the thing about this zombie plague is that native Canadians are immune to it. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is a this turns you into a zombie if you're a white motherfucker. <laughs> if you're a, if you're from the First Nations, you're immune to it. It protects you. So, so sort of cosmic justice going on. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there is. There's a cut. There's a, like a smallpox analogy. Yeah, there's sort of like, there's sort of like a weird uh, kind of fictional application of vengeance for you know years of colonization and humanization sure, yeah. you know now i did wonder whether it was <clears> going to be zombies or vampires when you said about the yeah well, yeah, yeah well yeah so the uh, yeah so these this reservation of Mi'kmaq people uh, now have to contend with a horde of ravaging ravaging zombies uh, who are pretty easy to demarcate because as i said it's only white people who can turn into zombies sure so um, I won't give away far too many details of this, but essentially the film does at some point, it does a jump from the first night and day of the discovery of this plague. And then it jumps forward. It did something that I actually, I liked it. I found it interesting the way it did it. It jumps forward six months and then it shows how uh, the people of the Red Crow Reservation have acclimatized to this zombie pandemic and how they're dealing with it. And I respected the, the uh, objective of this film. And I, and ultimately, I really, really liked the way that Jeff Barnaby and co. pulled this off. Because what this movie is, it's kind of like a native Canadian spin on The Walking Dead when The Walking Dead was good with a lot of the aesthetics of people, somebody like John Carpenter. There's wow, a cool. really cool, yeah, there's a lot of throwback feeling. This sort of uniformly strong performances with some really great levity in it as well. The, the punctuation of humour, because it seems that all of the people on the Red Crow Reservation, there is this kind of jaded, deadpan, sort of tongue-in-cheek, brutal humour that they have that, that serves the film really nicely. And I really enjoyed all the performances in general. And yeah, it's funny and it's gory, and there's some decently applied jump scares, and I really liked the effects in it as well. But yeah, this this film had a really, really intriguing and admirable way of marrying B-movie madness with really interesting socio-political content. Because, yeah, the fact that the Mi'kmaq people, the fact that First Nations people are immune to this virus, as you said, it, it has a weird spin of... They're fighting off, they're almost fighting off uh, a new brand of colonialism in that 
all of the zombies are white, but because they're mindless fucking idiots, the Mi'kmaq people are actually able to mobilize and arm themselves and take care of them pretty much. I really like the concepts of it. it yeah, I know. It's a native it, Canadian, as you said. Yeah. Native Canadian zombie film. Absolutely. Well, and the title cool treatment. The title Blood Quantum actually refers to archaic laws in the Americas that like who who is designated as um a you know a an indigenous person of the Americas and who isn't. It's like, oh, because you're you're an eighth, whatever you are. And it was a law applied by racist Anglo governments in order to consign natives to this or that. So yeah, it's it's a really uh, it was a really, really fresh and intriguing spin on dynamics between people who obviously be descendants, more than likely be descendants of white settlers in America and the descendants of the Aboriginal Americans or Aboriginal Canadians in this place who were there in the first place. And it's just a really, really novel and original evolution of those structural dynamics in society. The fact because it's it's weird because all the way along I was thinking it's you could kind of view this through a dual lens because it's like the white people becoming zombies in a manner of speaking that that's a punishment for them because they're now condemned to you know their minds have been taken from them and they're just condemned to roam the earth as reflexive machines. But then by the same token, the natives are being terrorized all over again. But as I mentioned before, they can, you know, they mobilize in a very, very badass way. It, it, it has, it walks a really nice tightrope between the dark humor and the more, the implications with more gravity in it. And all in all, yeah, nicely acted, really enjoyable premise that's pulled off really, really well. I thought it had yeah, it good moments of poignancy in it. It's annoying, actually, that a film that's got this much imagination and passion put into it is being propagated at such a low level. Because I was going to me going through Shudder where I thought, I looked at the poster and I thought, Blood Quantum, that title's got a ring to it. What's this about? Yeah, I have to admit, I yeah. wasn't aware of this. No, no, no. You, were, no, you me, told me you were reviewing Yeah, it. me neither. So, yeah, I saw the title, I saw the poster, I thought, immediately striking. Then I read the synopsis and I thought, yeah, okay, I'm, yeah, I'll be having some of that. This sounds really, really cool. And yeah, it's good. It, it does, does what I hoped it would do. And yeah, it, it has the commentary on the plight of natives whilst being funny, whilst supplying the kind of uh, thrills and chills that you want a zombie movie to provide. It's solid work, man, and more people should see it. Horror hounds should see it. But, you know, just genre fans, if you just like a movie, if you like a consistently watchable movie that hits the points, then you should see Blood Quantum because it's cool stuff. Okay, then. Well, that brings me on to TV of the week. And this week, we haven't done it in a while, docuseries discussion. One of these? Yeah, one of these. Again? Well. <laughs> no, you're right. It's been a while. For a specific reason, actually, because one of the things I have on in the background while I work on my laptop is there's a TV channel in the UK called Quest. Mm. And Quest, I believe, is owned by the Discovery Network. And as a result, they are advertising quite a few documentaries at the moment on Discovery Plus which is Discovery's streaming service. So I thought, you know, very much like you do with Shudder, I'd give it a try. It's £5 a month for the Discovery Plus streaming service. You get Quest and all these other channels, but you also get the new Discovery documentaries. And what these are, I think, is an attempt to eat Netflix's lunch 
(laughs) (laughs) Because Discovery used to do quite good documentaries. And then over recent years, they've fallen down the rabbit hole of more reality TV-based stuff. And I've rated um, Deadliest Catch on this show before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Deadliest Catch is genuinely good. It's reality TV as it's supposed to be. I'd always get confused between that and the, what's the Jeremy Wade one? Oh, uh, River Monsters, you know, which, is, which is brilliant. On freshwater different detective. Level. Yeah, freshwater detective. <laughs> <laughs> Aquatic investigator and whatever other bullshit Jeremy oh, he's brilliant. come up with that week. But yeah, <laughs> so they've been advertising quite heavily some of their new documentaries. And I thought, well, I love a docu-series. I watch a lot of them on Netflix. I think the game has been upped if you like, over recent years in terms of what people expect from a docu-series. A lot of the Netflix ones are really great. We rate them all the time on the podcast, or at least I do anyway. It's like a, a TV of the week kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, they've got a few big ones, so I thought I'd go through a few of these. Um, first one I want to talk about is called Unseemly. And this is uh, the investigation of Peter Nygaard. Are you aware of Peter Nygaard? Rings of faint, Bill. Yeah, same with me. Um, Peter Nygaard is, or was at this point, a Canadian fashion tycoon. Mm. And he made his name uh, in Winnipeg, creating this fashion company that wasn't particularly known in terms of high fashion like Gucci or Versace or the rest. It was more fashion for women of a certain age. So over the age of 40, uh, looser cuts, that sort of thing, flattering cuts that weren't there for strutting down a catwalk. They were fashion that you could wear every day. Yeah, And he made a huge amount of money out of it. And his competition at the time were primarily focused on women under the age of 25. And his logic was, well, what about all the women over 25? Surely they want to wear fashionable clothes as well. So he created this huge fashion empire in the 70s. Uh, came from, he's got Finnish ancestry, and he came from very, very poor stock indeed. And so there's a little bit of an investigation into his background. In fact, he grew up in this sort of log cabin arrangement. His uh, parents eventually opened a bakery, which brought them some success. He was able to go to school, get a business degree, and then create this huge fashion empire. One of the things that clued me into the fact that this documentary might be interesting is that in the advert, they show a clip that says, um, out of Harvey Weinstein and all the rest, Peter Nygaard may be the worst. Oh, shit. So we are dealing, of course, with the topic of sexual assault. Because according to this documentary, and it seems to be very well researched in this regard, and Peter Nygaard has since been arrested, um, he was famous for taking female employees and female models to his... James Bond supervillain style lair that's built like a Mayan temple out in the Bahamas. Nygaard Key, I believe it's called. He's got the, built this sort of tiki palace Mayan temple thing. He would take women back there, often underage women, so girls really, and perform horrible acts upon them. So it's one of these. It's an investigation into a pederast and a, uh, a very nasty person. A little bit of a malignant narcissist. Yes. Uh, Just a tad. That will be an understatement. Yeah. Uh, at one point, one of the models points out that he looks a lot like, I believe it's Siegfried out of Siegfried and Roy. It's the um, sort of shoulder-length flowing hair and yeah. the pinned-back face with a bit too much plastic surgery. And he's always wearing like his shirt open and he's revealed to take a uh, human growth hormone to keep his muscles pumped. So he looks that. like the repulsive piece of shit that he is. Yes, absolutely. Um Thing to say about this, so I started out saying this is Discovery Plus attempting to eat Netflix's lunch. Netflix do a lot of these kind of investigations. I reviewed um, Epstein, Filthy Rich, yeah, and all that sort of thing. Uh, this is a hard, hard watch. It fucking well sounds like. Yeah, and it kind of needs to be as well, in that a lot of this is testimony 
from women who have been uh, sexually assaulted and raped. Yeah. And as a result, there's no sugarcoating that, nor should there be. Mm. It's really, really harrowing at points to get through. Um, and rightly so. I, th I think, you know, to say that there should be some entertainment value out of this would be morally bankrupt. It's a documentary about a man doing terrible things to women and these women recounting those events. And as a result, that is very, very hard going. Actually, I think more than that, though, what makes it even harder is the pacing's off. And the pacing is off on a lot of these Discovery Plus documentaries that I've watched in the... Again, we're not looking for entertainment here. When we talk about documentaries, or when I talk about documentaries anyway, what I'm really looking for is intrigue. And in order to keep the intrigue up, the pacing needs to be snappy enough to keep you constantly wanting the next bit of information. Um, this is four parts, and actually it's one of those where I'd say you could lose a good hour's worth of content out of this. Not at the women's testimony, which I believe is important to stand there as a piece of evidence and a piece of record. But in terms of the fact it keeps languishing over the same points again and again and again, there's not really a lot of interest there. And I think there's a lot of interest in the story itself. I just don't think the documentary is effective at keeping the viewer hooked in a way that they should be because these women's stories are important. And as a result, it's sort of, it's hard to recommend this. I mean, I, I ended up watching it to the end more out of a sense of duty towards these women than out of being intrigued in the story because this guy's just a horrible piece of shit. Yeah. And this is quite a dry recount of him being a horrible piece of shit. Well, I think um, the, the, I think it's quite easy to delineate between that and entertainment, as you say, because something that is created for the purposes of edification as opposed to entertainment, it still needs to be well-structured. Yeah, and this it's just losing something. It repeats itself too often. And actually, this is a common theme because I'm about to get into another Discovery Plus documentary. This is called The Chameleon Killer. Now, this is um, just released and it's in two parts. Uh, both parts are about an hour and a half each. And this starts off with a cop wandering through the woods in the United States. And he finds behind a trailer park a barrel. And this barrel's burst open. And within the barrel, are two bodies, one of a young woman and one of a small child. And this sets off, of course, the hunt for what initially seems to be a one-off killing and it turns into a series of killings. Not hard to guess from the title, The Chameleon Killer it was a guy who I'm not going to name on this podcast because that's one of the reveals of the show. Leaves the name till the last minute. A lot of it is about hunting down, very much in the same way I reviewed uh, Night Stalker. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think fans of true crime, of which I'm sure there are some listening because you're into podcasts and most podcasts are true crime, will be aware of the name. I'm not going to reveal it because the documentary holds it back. Um, obviously, he moved uh, between identities and there was a series of killings which makes him worthy of note for a serial killer documentary. Again, something that Netflix is very good at, something that Netflix makes a lot of, or even licenses a lot of. A lot of the good documentaries on Netflix aren't even Netflix originals. They're ones that Netflix has perhaps provided some funding to or used their platform in order to promote. It's got the same problem, which I found interesting. It's the pacing's wrong. You need to keep up that level of intrigue. It labours where it really shouldn't. It goes over the same points again and again to the point where you go, I, I wonder how much of it is because of the serialization nature of making something for a channel that has to put in five advert breaks in the middle of their documentary. So you, there's always this thing with some American network television that when you watch it as a whole, when you watch it as one piece, you realise it's repeating itself often because 
they're worried that during the advert break, people will have left or come back in like halfway through. It's got something different to contend with, whereas Netflix is built for that bingeable, watch it all in one format, which I think suits a docuseries much, much better. Yeah. This needs to repeat itself over and over. I'm repeating myself now by saying this point over and over again. <laughs> if you think this is annoying, watch the documentaries because you got, again, all the content in this could be taken down from three hours worth of content to two very, very easily. And that's a shame because, again, this is putting forward the stories of victims of a horrible, horrible person. And I want to say, watch this because you should be aware of this sort of stuff, because you should be aware of these people's stories, because a great amount of suffering was accrued. And it's important that this is out there. And it is. But is it an intriguing powerful experience the way it should be not quite and i just get the feeling that discovery is that they're obviously within the editing within some of the shots you know sort of dusty buildings and cameras moving slowly and a shot of someone's hand you're thinking yeah they're really trying to go hey we've made documentaries for ages and now we're making them like netflix you like us right but it's the commercial no well yeah <laughs> it's the commercial yeah. nature of the discovery channel format that actually kills these documentaries which is very annoying because otherwise they're quite good tales but i found them both for slightly different reasons but with some similarities between the two quite hard to watch and i don't think I, I can't sit here in good conscience and recommend them, although I do recommend looking into the stories. Would you agree or disagree that I think uh, it's important that something being made for the purposes of bringing these events to light that a lot of people may otherwise not know about and making sure they know the victims' names, make sure they know these people, these are real human beings, they went through this because of this animal, it, you, there is a. I think there's an inherent duty to present it well. Yeah, there is. I, I, it, well, I often end up tying mo my, morally. Really. I often end up tying myself in knots with these sort of things because sometimes you want to say I struggle with it on Night Stalker because Night Stalker is entertaining. I mean, it, it sort of flat out is entertaining, but entertaining is the wrong word, really, because that almost sounds like you're condoning that you're, you're getting some kind of you're like you're getting off on it. That vicarious thrill kind of is that aesthetic. You feel a little bit dirty about that, but yeah. I absolutely, your your point I think stands, you know, in its essence, in the yeah. In order to effectively convey these stories, there are some tricks and techniques you can use to really keep the audience on tent hooks. In which case, you're able to deliver that information. I think a lot of people will have watched the comedian killer and unseemly and turned off about halfway through. And is that really doing justice to the story? I no. think with a snappier editing and as well with Discovery Channel, they're obviously looking for a TV commercial format. So they've obviously said, right, this needs to be four episodes long. This needs to be two episodes long. You need to get this amount of content. And you feel at points that it's really stretching and padding. And it, that will kill the intrigue for the audience. And as a result, they won't know these events. And that's the antithesis of what a good documentary yeah, should so be. I know you discussed it on the podcast before, but that aesthetic in Night Stalker, you mentioned the sort of throwback to a you know if if the eighties clashy eighties cop drama yeah, yeah you know essentially you know these are the guy you know you look at William L Peterson and John uh, Pankow into Live and Die in L A like well these guys are the real life variants of them do you think that that aesthetic was there um, by means of confrontation to be confrontational towards us because of the way that we lap up. Uh, stylized violence mm. and stylized nastiness, kind of like how Michael Haneke did with Funny Games. Do you think that aesthetic was there as a confrontational measure? 
Yeah, to a degree. Because um, if so, then that makes some modicum of sense. But I think it was, um, I think it was a necessity in order to get the story across. Mm. But hey, hang on a minute. This is exactly like an 80s cop drama, and an 80s police procedural. So let's frame it that way. Let's yeah, yeah, The footage lends itself to that aesthetic. So I think it was a great stylistic choice in that sense. And it keeps you gripped until the end so you learn the full story. So I think it's uh, two hands serving the whole in that sense. I've got one more to talk about here. If you subscribe to Disney+, Plus, uh, welcome to the Star Wars kiddie content channel. Okay? <laughs> but one of the things you get with it, and then The Mandalorian as well, which is fantastic. One of the things you get with it, though, is a bunch of streaming content from National Geographic because they're all part of the Disney wonderful mouse family. And I looked through the National Geographic documentaries and thought, oh, brilliant, because there's a ton of history stuff on there. And I've banged on many, many times about how much I like my history. And one particularly caught my eye. This is entitled The Lost Tomb of Alexander the Great. So this is following the archaeologist um, Pepe Papacosta, who is digging up a part of the city of Alexandria that is a public park currently. But she had a theory that underneath this public park was the royal quarter of the ancient city of Alexandria. And the royal quarter is where Alexander the Great's eventual tomb is supposed to be. And so she's got a permit from the government and she's digging underneath this public park, trying to find any evidence of the fact that she's in the right spot. And so she's actually so far managed to dig up quite a large part of it that shows that she is on exactly the right spot as to where Alexander the Great's fucking tomb is supposed to be. Now, this would be the biggest archaeological find potentially of all time. And when we think of big archaeological finds, the first one to go to is Tutankhamun's tomb mm. and Howard Carter. The thing about Tutankhamun was the tomb was really interesting because it was so incredibly well preserved. Tutankhamun, as a pharaoh, was actually relatively... Not that much of note. He was the boy king. Didn't really accomplish a huge amount during his reign. The thing was, this was an Egyptian tomb that hadn't been raided. It hadn't fallen prey to the ravages of time. It, everything was so brilliantly preserved. If you were able to find the tomb of Alexander the Great, that would be absolutely mind-blowing. That would be the thing people will be talking about hundreds of years from now. And she seems to be pretty much on it. She's found evidence of the fact she's in the right place. She's dug up busts and statues of Alexander the Great. She's dug up the road network that shows that her map that she's put over the top of the current city of Alexandria fits with where she's digging. She is literally this close to finding the tomb. So I was sitting there watching this thinking, this is absolutely fantastic. I love this sort of stuff. Really, really enjoying it. I was about half an hour into it. And I had something to do. Like I, I either had to put the oven on or feed Floki or something like that. <laughs> so I paused it. I went, oh, I'm really, really enjoying this. Fantastic. Paused it, went up, did what I had to do, came back, went to play it. And I noticed I was half an hour into it. There was 15 minutes left. This is a 45 minute documentary on the woman digging up the tomb of Alexander the Great. Now, I'm not saying that I'm disappointed with the fact that I expected this documentary piece to end with them discovering the tomb of Alexander the Great. If that had happened, we would have read about it on the news, okay? Yes. I didn't, yeah, I was had no expectations in that regard. What I would have liked is more than 45 fucking minutes on what is quite possibly the biggest archaeological dig of all time. 
I think that's doing it a disservice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll probably disagree with you there. And a lot of it is filler as well. You've got this Burke. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's, he obviously presents a lot of National Geographic stuff. And he's wandering around going again and again and again. This could be the tomb of Alexander the Great. This could be the tomb of Alexander the Great. Do you know this could be the tomb of Alexander the Great? I fucking know because I'm watching the same <laughs> program that you're making, mate. You've made that abundantly clear. I, this is begging. Even, okay, they haven't actually got to where they need to go with the archaeological dick. But an hour and a half program going into why Alexander the Great was so important, some of his accomplishments over the years, other tombs. There's one point where he goes to a tomb that looks like the style they would expect Alexander the Great's tomb to be. And you go, okay, brilliant. That's like an eight-minute segment in the 45-minute documentary. And you just think, what a waste. What an absolute waste of an opportunity to put this work into context in the way that it deserves. I can't get my head around why they would just put this down to 45 minutes. Obviously, part of that is to fit in the fucking adverts yeah. for when National Geographic air it on their channel or when it comes up on Discovery or whatever else. But at the very least, you could have put a bit more effort into what is essentially an astounding event. I hope and I pray that this documentary crew is going to be sticking with this woman as she continues her efforts because she is standing on the cusp of one of the great events of all time. But to do a 45-minute program on it with virtually no context on why Alexander the Great was so important was such a swing and a miss. I was genuinely annoyed by it. Uh, which yeah. is a, a great, great shame because the work she's doing is incredible. And I would advise you to check out the documentary simply to see a little bit of that. But what I really want to be doing is sitting here going, there's a great two-and-a-half-hour documentary about Alexander the Great and how close this woman is to finding his tomb. It's just not there. You need to write these motherfuckers, man. Like, where's your scope? Yeah. Need more scope. <laughs> I, just, I just pray that that documentary crew is continuing to follow her. Yeah. Rather than, okay, well, that'll do. And then we'll come back later after it's all done. No, no, no. I want to see it as it happens. It just seems premature. Sounds like a very phoned in handling. It's, of... it's a premature ejaculation of a documentary, and I'm annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't say I blame you there from the sounds of it, dude. To stop this from being Andy's entirely negative segment on the podcast, <laughs> okay, I, th I thought I'd throw in something I've been watching recently that's actually very good because I don't like to be completely negative. We always like to try and do a bit like that. Quadruple whammies tonight. This is good. Yeah, I know, right? Well, I knew those ones wouldn't take me particularly long because <laughs> it, it, it doesn't take long to, to point out the flaws in something. But I thought I'd point out something good while I'm here. This isn't a documentary. This is a series that is up on Netflix now, originally aired on the BBC. I believe we've talked about it previously. I think you recommended it to me ages ago this is called hinterland oh no i know of hinterland mm. but I, I haven't actually seen it not a documentary this is a police procedural set in uh, wales isn't set it? in wales indeed yes i watched twin town again the other day i love that film yeah <laughs> uh, this is um main character is a uh, tom matthias played by richard harrington and it is in all ways a police procedural you've got every single trope going on with it you've got He's the debonair um, detective with a dodgy past that is revealed very slowly throughout the narrative. He's got a boss who's always on his case and never believes anything he says, even though he's the top man that's constantly solving murders in every single episode of this show. His boss never You're a bullshitter. His boss never gets <laughs> behind him. Um, it's got the ubiquitous trope, like every single one of these police procedural tropes within it. However, because it's so well acted, because it's showing Wales, which is a part of the world that, I mean, even for English people sitting here, Wales is still something of a mystery. I've been a couple of times, but Wales is quite cut off from the rest of the country. I think prefers it that way. They've got their yeah. own culture. They have their own um, beliefs. And because it's showing this different culture, 
because it's got intrigue in that regard in very much the same way you remember I reviewed uh, the Valhalla murders the other yeah. week. You're, you're getting an insight into a way of life that is alien to a lot of the rest of the world. Because of the great acting, because of the beautiful way this is shot, despite the fact that it has every single trope of a police procedural, this really, really works. And is made on quite a low budget as well. Another interesting thing about this is that every single scene was shot once in English and then once in Welsh as well. And it was funded because um, the BBC were mandated to create more Welsh content. There wasn't enough content on the BBC for Welsh-speaking people. And so a show set in Wales as a police procedural was their solution to this problem. And it's absolutely fantastic. It's really, really good. Despite the fact it's got those tropes, it manages to subvert them, it manages to glide above them. It's artistically shot. It's well-paced. It's character-based drama. And Richard Harrington's performance, yeah, when you're doing one of those tropey detectives with the dark past that's got a sixth sense for murder and who's done what, to rise above that and to do something interesting and dark and genuine and real with it is quite a hard thing to do in this day and age because there's so many of those. However, all of that being said, Hinterland actually sits slightly above it. Just through its sheer production values, quality of acting, and the fact that it was shot on a small budget kind of blows my mind because it does way more with that budget than a lot of really average police procedurals that are trotted out by the BBC again and again and again. So if you've got a Netflix UK account, it's all sitting up there for you. I would highly recommend Hinterland. I think it's a fresh retelling of a very old tale. Yeah, it was a mutual friend of ours who I bumped into in the street, and he told me that essentially verbatim what you said, even though it is a procedural when you know there's a fucking murder every week, etc. It's got great cinematography. It feels lived in and realistic, and it just has like a very immersive yeah. and authentic grasp on it. And he also said, because I've yet to watch it, I want to watch it. But uh, especially you, how you've given it a great rundown there. But he, he was also saying about how the landscape, it's bleak, but it still retains a beauty. A lot of comparisons. And, you know, my review the other week of the Valhalla murders is essentially saying the same thing, really. And yeah. I think both shows stand out. Police procedurals are ten a penny. But between those two, I think there's some real unique, naturalistic brilliantly shot intriguing stuff if you're a fan of the genre at all uh, you're doing yourself a disservice by not checking it out really do so that's my positive note to end my segment on sweet yeah i'll be uh, looking into hinterland okay then trivia to finish off with and based off of that really disappointing national geographic documentary <laughs> i thought i'd do some trivia on alexander the great because wouldn't you know he was quite interesting he was he was quite an important man wasn't he not that you'd know it from watching 45 minutes <laughs> but you know 45 minutes of nothing i thought well you know now you can go and you can listen to my trivia piece and learn some interesting things about alexander the great and then you can go and watch the documentary with some context which is what the documentary should have done in the fucking first place. So. <laughs> you're, gonna, go. you're gonna retroactively make the documentary good. This is like bonus content for a program <laughs> I didn't make. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, start off with this then. Alexander's father, Philip II of Macedon, hired Aristotle, one of history's greatest philosophers, to educate the 13-year-old prince. Little is known about Alexander's three-year tutelage, but presumably, by the end of it, Aristotle's wise but worldly approach had sunk in. According to legend, while still a prince in Greece, Alexander sought out the famed aesthetic Diogenes the Cynic, who rejected social niceties and slept in a large clay jar. Alexander approached the thinker in a public plaza, asking Diogenes if there was anything he and his great riches could do for him. Yes, Diogenes replied, 
Stand aside, you're blocking my son. Alexander was charmed by Diogenes' refusal to be impressed, stating, if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. Years later in India, Alexander paused his military conquests to have lengthy discussions with the gymnosophists, naked philosophers from the Hindu or Jain religions who eschewed human vanity and clothing. Damn. There you go. Immediately interesting thing about Alexander the Great. He was educated by Aristotle. I first learned about uh, Diogenes from you, and uh, when just you only had to tell me about the baseline shit of that guy for about a few minutes, and I thought I just immediately became a fan. Yeah, he used to, used to live in a huge clay yeah. pot in the marketplace, and he only had one possession, which was a bowl, until he saw a young boy drinking out of the river with just his hands, and then he threw away the bowl as well. He had no worldly possessions. It's an interesting character. Were you guys around nowadays saying you live a Spartan lifestyle? Yes. <laughs> Alexander the Great's military tactics and strategies are still studied in military academies today. From his first victory at age 18, Alexander gained a reputation of leading his men to battle with impressive speed, allowing smaller forces to reach and break the enemy lines before his foes were ready. After securing his kingdom in Greece in 334 BC, Alexander crossed into Asia where he won a series of battles with the Persians under Darius III. The centerpiece of Alexander's fighting force was the 15,000-strong Macedonian phalanx, whose units held off the sword-wielding Persians with 20-foot-long pikes called Sarissa. Perhaps his most famous victory came at Galgamela, when he took on the Persian army of Darius III in 331 BC. Whereas Darius led 34,000 cavalry, plus some 200,000 infantry, Alexander's forces numbered only 7,000 cavalry and 30,000 infantry. Yet, despite being 1,000 miles from their homeland, Alexander's men routed the Persians. Some records state that 50,000 of Darius's men were killed in battle, compared to just 1,000 Greeks. Wow. <laughs> he never lost a battle. In 15 years, it took him to conquer the huge area that he eventually... And he never lost once. Is it... um? In Die Hard, where Han said, uh, and Alexander looked over the breadth of his domain and wept for he had no more worlds to conquer. Wept some tears, yes. Yeah, it's, um, for he had no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a miss, that quote, but it's a nice one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very nice. I've got a bit on the phalanx, actually. The phalanx, a rectangular mass military formation made up of closely ranked troops, was a formidable fighting machine. The spears used by soldiers in a phalanx were long, sometimes as long as five metres, and made of sharpened wood or metal-tipped wood. The tactic was perfected by Alexander's father, Philip, who first learned of it after observing Greek armies. Interestingly, Macedonian author Polynaeus says that Alexander spitefully made his men, who had not fought bravely enough in battle, wear the so-called hemithorican. I'm really fucking myself over with pronunciation this week. <laughs> a half-armor system that only covered the front part of the body. This punitive experiment made sure that the soldiers wouldn't turn their backs on the enemy. You can only wow. have armor in the front. <laughs> so the phalanx as well, remember in 300? Yeah. The, so your shield would cover the guy on your left. So your entire role within the fight was to protect the guy to the left of you. And you'd hope that the guy to your right would protect you in the same way. And uh, they used to put uh, families and friends closer together in the phalanx to make them protect each other harder. Yeah, so there was that whole thing about um, you know, like Spartan cowardice and that kind of thing, like either come back with your shield or on it. A big part of that was, you know, if you came back, whoever was to your left, you let them die. So yeah, deep, dark stuff, huh? Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Legend has it that when Alexander the Great was about to invade Persia in 334 BC, the Persian king Darius III sent him a polo mallet and ball. 
It's thought that this gesture was either inviting the Macedonian to a game, or he was suggesting that Alexander should stick to games and avoid war. Whatever the intention, Alexander is said to have replied, I am the stick and the ball is the earth, before going on to conquer Persia. (laughs) Badass. Yeah, absolutely. Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, written 400 years after Alexander's death, reports that a most agreeable odour exuded from Alexander's skin, and that his breath and body all over was so fragrant as to perfume the clothes which he wore. The olfactory detail was part of a tradition, begun during Alexander's lifetime, of ascribing godlike attributes to the conquering king. Alexander himself openly called himself son of Zeus during a visit to Siwa in 331 BC. He was so godly, he smelled good. Well, I don't know, man. I mean, one man's fucking, you know, Yves Saint Laurent is another man's pile of feces. He kind of smelled good after battle. He could have have smelled fucking horrible. Yeah. And that guy just liked a really nasty, musky, scatological pungence. That's a lovely image you're conjuring for the audience right there. (laughs) Which is, and if, if that's what he likes, that's what he's into. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Live and let live. In 323 BC, Alexander the Great fell ill after downing a bowl of wine at her party. Two weeks later, the 32-year-old ruler was dead. Given that Alexander's father had been murdered by his own bodyguard, suspicion fell on those surrounding Alexander, most notably his general Antipater and Antipater's son Cassander, who would eventually order the murders of Alexander's widow and son. Some ancient biographers even speculated that Aristotle, who had connections with Antipater's family, may have been involved. In modern times, medical experts have speculated that malaria, lung infection, liver failure, or typhoid fever may have done Alexander in. Yeah. All, uh... Or down a whole bowl of wine at once. I, I just imagine a huge punch bowl. It pro- probably means like a little cup or something, but I just imagine him going nuts on a, uh, on a bowl of punch. So sort of mad conqueror and potentially a raving pisshead. Yeah. Because they... I mean, have they absolutely objectively ruled out what you just said there? Yeah, yeah. You know, might yeah. have died of uh, alcoholism, which, even though horrible, sounds just more appealing than typhoid. He was the same age as me when he died, 33. Really? Mm. It's not very good innings. Well, well, maybe it, for the time period it was. But in 15 years, he managed to conquer a huge segment of the world. If you're interested in this sort of trivia, by the way, just look up his Wikipedia page. It is huge, vast, and extensive, and... Uh, Really, a good read, actually. I had a lot of fun with this one. Mm. Almost immediately after his death in 323 BC, legends began to spread about Alexander the Great's exploits and life, which over the centuries became increasingly fantastic as well as allegorical. Collectively, this tradition is called the Alexander Romance, and the stories feature such episodes as Alexander ascending through the air to paradise, journeying to the bottom of the sea in a glass bubble, and voyaging through the land of darkness in search of the fountain of youth. Writing attributed to the Greek philosopher Aristotle references a diving bell, describing a cauldron forced straight down into water, thus keeping the air within it. In fact, it's possible that Alexander the Great saw, or was perhaps even in, a glass diving bell. There are stories about him visiting the bottom of the ocean in a glass ball during the famous siege of Tyre. These may very well just be legends, but it is conceivable that Alexander, who was curious to learn about everything, had a go in a glass diving bell himself. Wow. Yeah, this seems there might actually be a degree of uh, of facts to the myth in that regard. Yeah, the um, the other things you mentioned sound a little bit apocryphal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, searching for the fountain of youth, he could have done that. He just wouldn't have found it, right? Yeah, precisely. Well, that wraps up our free podcast this week, my friend. We're off into premium podcast territory. 
This week, we're going to be doing the best of British. Yeah, British British cinema. Lovely bit of British. British cinema is best, isn't it? Really? Yeah, you can you can keep the rest of it, world. Off the back of Brexit and other bad ideas, we decided <laughs> that um, we'd have a look at British cinema because we are indeed two Brits and there's some good stuff out there. There's some really, really great stuff out there, actually. And I, and I think there's a good deal of it that we probably haven't discussed before on the free or premiums and they're just good ones to have a chinwag about. Yeah, absolutely. So if you feel like joining us for that, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page or you can Google Cinementalist and the Patreon page is the first result. You can follow us at Cinementalcast. Uh, for weekly updates on the podcast and other stuff that I randomly put up as well. Yeah, and film memes and shit like that. And you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. Oh, and also there's a link on the cinematalist.com website to the Wacko Jacko blob. Blob? (laughs) <laughs> Jacko blob. The Wacko Jacko blob. Blobby, blobby, blobby. Yeah. We should rename it from this point forward. <laughs> you can find a link to the Wacko Jacko blog where Liam puts up his weekly musings as well. And please do give them a read. They are very well written indeed. Anything else to add, Liam? Thank you very much for listening, people. We hope you had a good time. We certainly did. And uh, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Worst ending we've ever done. <laughs> no, cheers, cheers, guys. Um, yeah, just uh, check out the good stuff we recommended. Also, the stuff that we said was mediocre, probably check that out as well, but don't blame us if you don't like it. There you go, yeah. Always right, always right, we are. Okay, guys, uh, hope to see you on the premium one, if not free one, next week. Thank cheers. you very much.